The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. The HSE's National Service Plan for 2024 was published yesterday. It outlines its priorities for the year, which include improving access to urgent and emergency care, prioritising waiting lists and continuing to enhance mental health and disability services. As part of cost-saving measures, it's also going to cut agency staff and focus on maximising productivity. Well, I'm joined now by the Chief Executive of the HSE on the line, Bernard Gloucester. Bernard, good morning. Morning, Pat. Thanks for having us on. Now, it's, it's a very interesting document because you're saying even at this point, it's February, uh, looking to the end of the year, you're not going to be within budget. Yeah, I think the financial position of the HC got well aired in the last quarter of last year around budget time. Um, and, and I think that all being said uh, and being on the record, uh, we do have a very substantial uh, investment by government in the service this year and the purpose of the plan is to set out what we intend to do with that uh, and how we intend to to reduce to the greatest extent possible our reliance on a supplementary at the end of the year. I think just to put in context for, for people, Pat, the, the overall HSE budget this year um, in terms of government uh, cash investment is €23.5 billion. Euro. 20.7 of that is health and 2.8 is disability because we now have two parent departments uh, since March of last year. And that's a very significant amount of money. Uh, I've been in the health service for a very long time and uh, I, c- I can assure you it's not that long ago we were talking about a health budget being astronomical at €10 billion. Euro. So it is very substantial. There is no doubt we're carrying a cost and a cost uh, base some pressure coming into this year uh, which if we just carried on uh, the, the money wouldn't meet that uh, but, but, but I think the plan sets out very clearly a number of ways in which we can uh, take the impact of any pressure down without cutting services yeah. uh, and at the same time demonstrate the best use we can for the public of the money that we have is ultimately it's their money mm. and it's in their interest that we use now, as well. The, the whole idea of saving money, I mean there is £250 million to be saved by a reduction in agency staff and sure. then by replacing agency staff with full-time employees a further £80 million to be saved which gives you a total saving of 330 million. Okay, Mm. so there does not appear to be an appetite for agency staff to go back as many of them came from, to go back to the HSE. Yeah, so I think I think there's um, maybe maybe two things in that. I I was talking to one of your colleagues yesterday evening, and I was making the point when you when you talk about the use of agency staff, you have to talk about it in the context of the overall use of workforce, um, and and the workforce in the HSE, our direct employed workforce, pass uh, as we hit Christmas just gone was 145,985 full-time equivalents. Um, that's up from just under 120,000. At the start of 2020, that's an astronomical growth in people. So that's the first point to make. And, and uh, where where do those people, uh, where are they employed? Because if you have an extra 25,000, almost 26,000 people on the front line, we shouldn't be having the problems that we're having. So where are these and, people and, going? And and so one could say that. I can assure you I, I'm, I'm satisfied that the 145,000 people uh, whole-time equivalents that we've employed, almost 146, uh, are all needed. Uh, I mean, we can go through the breakdown of those that are medical, nursing, and so on, but, but I think the principal point is they're all needed. The issue with agency, 
uh, and over time uh, is that uh, coming out of the pandemic uh, because of pressures uh, in previous years with recruiting and delays in recruiting, the organisation developed a dependency on agency staffing, which simply was not sustainable. And, and if I was just to, uh, to give you a sense of roughly what that looks like, we had about a budget provision uh, for spending in that area of about 400 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, and last year, we were looking at spending about a billion. So we're about two thirds off the mark with that. Uh, one, it's very costly. Okay, but uh, why? Two- D- just tell me why. Why you didn't just in- employ more permanent staff instead of going to agencies? I mean, clearly so, the personnel are there. If the agency can find them, well, you could find them. Yeah, and sometimes people choose agency as a more attractive option because they can pick their hours, they can pick reduced hours, they can pick the times of the week they work and so on and so on. Uh, and young people coming out of college and who are intending to travel. So there's, there's lots of reasons. And yeah, but I, if I the job is not... Hang on, Bernard. If, if you're not offering agency jobs, well, then people can't do agency work. So clearly you are facilitating, yes. you're an enabler, if you like, of yeah. this growth in agency employment. But you could absolutely say that, and that's why I'm saying the organisation did develop a dependency on it. I'm very clear we do need an amount of agency staff because we will always have short-term fills on sure. shifts that we have to cover. So what, I, what I've uh, agreed with the Minister and the Secretary-General and the Government this year is we would take last year's really out-of-control out of uh, spend on agency and over time. We put it in three parts. We intend to keep a third of it because we need a third. Mm-hmm. We intend to convert a third, and that's to offer those people jobs, uh, direct jobs with us, and that saves about 20% of that cost. And we intend to reduce by a third. And the reason we feel we can reduce by a third is that last year in our workforce, we set out to recruit 6,100 additional net growth staff in the year 2023. And by the end of the year, we had actually overshot that and hit uh, almost 8,300. So we certainly have the capacity within the main workforce to be able to now uh, rebalance the dependency. But you should already be seeing those benefits. If you've got an extra 2,000 people working in areas that were uh, personnelled by agency staff, you should already be seeing those improvements in, in January of this year. And we're, we're, we're seeing those improvements pass in many, many places. So if I just give you an example, uh, last year we took about 1.1, 1.15 million people off of our outpatient waiting list. That was 70,000 more people than we planned to do at the start of the year. Uh, and, and, and there are a whole range of areas where we saw excessive demand uh, for services beyond what we predicted last year. Okay. We met that demand. So, so it's not that these people are sitting idly by, uh, but, but there is a need now through, through the best use of rostering and effective management of the resource we have uh, to be able to provide the services we're doing and curtail our dependency now, on agency staff. I'm looking at your productivity measures because you're really uh, trying to uh, get a gallon out of a pint pot, uh, it would appear, saving 330 million and so on. And this is, uh, this is what is baffling me. The key messages, acknowledging that delays in care are quality and safety issue for our patients and service users and therefore improving productivity is a key part of improving safety and quality. Two, productivity measures cannot reduce the overall quality of services or overburdened staff. That's an ambition, not a technique, I have to say. Three, service managers and their teams will need to be reasonably supported to deliver productivity measures and then firmly but fairly held to account for that delivery. Productivity measures should fit within an overall approach to sustainable, continuous improvements in services for the benefit of patients and service users. Ultimately, they should involve local staff being supported to continuously identify and remove all forms of waste in their processes, including any waste of patient or staff time, skills or insight. 
uh, and productivity measures implementation should be informed by direct observation at the location where services are delivered, as well as utilisation of the best available data. What does Mm -hmm. that mean? Because you're asking people who tell us on this programme they're put to the pin of their collars already, and you're telling them that you want more blood from them. Yeah, I, 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 and I don't think it's as extreme as as the the blood from a stone or or uh, anything like that. Uh, let me let me just contextualise that for your listeners just a little bit, Pat. What we mean by productivity is two things. One where we have either waste or where we can better use something, that we reduce that and we reduce the cost of it. Uh, I think in in any household or any business, that would be a reasonable expectation, and it should be no different uh, in our public health and social care services. Okay, give us some examples, though, because, you know, people listening, uh, you're familiar with the nuts and bolts of this, but they're not, and they're saying, well, what waste is there currently that can be eliminated? Well, so so I, I, we've just come off the back of a discussion about the use of agency staffing. Uh, and with all of the extra staff we have, we should now, as you say, be seeing the benefit of that. So more effective rostering, more effective deployment of, of the workforce we have uh, gives you better use of that. Uh, certainly, we know that in, in a number of our sites, uh, the, the practices in relation to food preparation and food management and stock management uh, do leave a margin uh, for improvement on that. But where the real productivity story passes in the health service uh, is not so much in the savings on the cash or reducing uh, a bit of expenditure. Where the real productivity is in the health service is the better use of what we have in more modern ways of practicing health and social care to give a service to the people and the people who are now this year going to give extra demand. Let me just give you an example of that. There's been a lot of discussion about trolleys, and rightly so, uh, and people waiting on trolleys. The simple reality is, Pat, in the last six months of 2023, compared to the last six months of 2022, we reduced the amount of people waiting on trolleys to be admitted to a hospital bed by 22%. And that's by not any messing around with figures. That's by very, very transparent standard measurement. All of that was done by rebalancing, moving away from this notion of a winter plan that came with loads of money to a very practical four-stage approach to patient flow. That's what productivity is. All right. What about ambulances sitting outside hospitals because there's no room in the ED for the trolley? There's no trolley to spare. And the ambulances, we we clearly, and we've heard many people advocate for this, we clearly need more ambulances and more paramedical personnel. Uh, and, there, and there absolutely is a concern and the geographic terrain in Ireland uh, and the demand on ambulance services uh, is, is, is absolutely huge. Uh, our ambulance service has uh, now separated out at uh, the time uh, that we're going to measure uh, the turnaround at, at emergency departments. So the first measurement is uh, the time for handover of a patient. That's complete handoff from ambulance personnel to hospital personnel. Uh, and that's targeted to be inside 20 minutes. Uh, and then from that handover to if you want to go from handbrake on to handbrake off, uh, is a second period of 15 to 20 minutes. Okay, but, but uh, tell me this. In order, their targets, and they're wonderful targets, how are they to be achieved? Have you enough ambulances? Have you enough personnel to achieve these targets? I, I, th- I think there will be pressure achieving them, but I think at an 80% target, we're coming much closer to it. Uh, the ambulance service is, is a fantastic service with wonderful personnel. We now have a whole variety of different vehicles on the road, not just the blue light ambulances you'd be familiar with, but yeah. intermediate care vehicles, which mean the emergency ambulances aren't tied up transferring patients okay. between hospitals. One of, the, uh, one of the principal ways in which uh, you could probably achieve efficiencies in terms of patient throughput and so on is seven-day rosters 
for everybody. Right. How close are yes. you to that? So uh, over the period uh, up to the start of February, we've certainly seen an excessive trolley uh, pressure in the last two and a half weeks, and I'm the first to admit that. But over the period of uh, about the middle of December, well into January of this year, if you go back over the news cycle, not just on your own programme, mm-hmm. but uh, right across the media platforms, you heard very little, if any, commentary about trolleys. That's probably the first year uh, in 15 that trolleys weren't the headline story. And that's partly because I've said of the improvements that we have made. OK, but what about seven-day rosters? Uh, yes. I mean, it's, so, it's way past so time. Part, you can only get part, sick Monday to Friday for efficient care. Yeah. That's way so past time. Of, yeah, so part of the solution, Pat, that, that led to that story this year uh, is we got far more um, uh, uh, discharges from our hospital services at weekends and we had far more availability. OK, but that's, not the, I, that's wonderful that at local level this is being achieved. But you must have a policy of seven-day rostering for everybody, no matter how highfalutin the consultant is or how lowly the porter might be viewed. Everyone's got to be on a seven-day roster. And, and I'm, I'm nine, nine, uh, 11 months now in this job, and I, I said that shortly after I came. We're now off the back of a new public sector pay agreement, and the facility is in that for me now to negotiate that further. That's the first thing. And the second thing is we now have a critical mass of about 1,700 people on the new public-only consultant contract, which allows Saturday rostering as well as late evening rostering. Uh, what about so Sunday I, rostering? I, I, well, Sunday rostering isn't in, in the in 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 the contracted position at the moment. But we're but why we're not? To... Why not? People get well, sick seven days a week. People you, get you discharged. Wouldn't it be nice that a family sure. could come on a it Sunday great, yeah. and have their their relative great. discharged? And we have discharges on a Sunday, and we had a we had an awful amount of discharges over uh, the Sundays of the eight weeks of what we call the winter pressure period. So it does happen. Uh, what I'm saying to you is the policy position and the policy platform is to move to a seven day service. We've made enormous progress in that in ten months, but we do have a body of work to do. I think the combination of the public sector agreement and the consultant contract allows for that. The increase in GP training places will enhance that in terms of GP out of our services. So there there have been enormous improvements but I don't think there's anybody and I'm certainly not going to sell uh, this service plan is saying we, we have room for complacency. We don't. What we have, I think, are very positive signs of improvement uh, in our delivery to people. And yet, there are so many people we come up short for. Uh, and they're the people I'm focused on in this plan. The, the, the way I, I view, if you like, someone getting sick, having some sort of acute emergency that requires hospitalisation, sometimes they go to the GP. Often they can't find a GP when they become ill because out-of-hour services are patchy, to mm. say uh, the least. So they yep. end up going to the hospital, perhaps by ambulance. Then they go in. They might end up uh, on a trolley in an ED. Then they might get admitted to a ward. If they need it, they're into ICU. They then recover and eventually they're discharged, maybe to a step-down facility, a nursing home. And then when they're better, they go home, but they need home care. So unless you start at the bottom, which is home care and properly resourcing home care and properly paying the home carers and recruiting enough of them and paying them, as I say, appropriately, your whole system gets clogged up because the real problem is at the base level of home care. Couldn't agree with you more, Pat. And uh, the plan for this year provides for 22 million uh, home care hours, the rate payable uh, to particularly the private and voluntary providers who for a long time um, um, couldn't, as it were, pay the, the rates that some public sector areas were paying. Uh, that was addressed last year substantially to bring it above €30 Euro per hour that we're now paying. Um, we will, I think, turn out 2023 with just under 
uh, 21.5, near 22 million hours delivered. That's one of the highest coming close to targets we've ever done. We've 22 million hours provided for this year. Um, and I, I have absolutely no doubt that if we reach that level of provision to some 55,000 people, the government aren't going to be found wanting and further support right. for that. It, it is the basic um, support level, along with the access to GP care, and both of those, uh, uh, there's substantial improvement to be made yet, right. Pat, but there has been substantial improvement in them. I'll read out some of the questions uh, and comments. Uh, those like myself who were going through the HSE recruitment process, I was placed on a panel and then told things were on hold due to the recruitment embargo. What is the status of those panels and those of us who were put on the panel? So the first thing is anyone who was on a recruitment panel uh, that was established inside the last 12 months, the panel remains live and jobs are filled off that as they're approved. Uh, If I give you an example, in physiotherapy, occupational therapy and speech and language therapy, uh, we didn't apply any uh, recruitment pause in respect of disability services. We've now offered very large amount of jobs to populate those teams. Uh, and as we work out our pay numbers control for this year, we will be offering jobs outside of the disability services. At the moment, Pat, at the moment, we are at the level we were funded to coming out of 23 and above it. Uh, and yet, in addition to that, between health and disability services, uh, government have funded mm. some almost 3,000 new posts to be filled this year. We will be filling those off of those mm. very panels. Yes. Right. Uh, I'll read you some more comments. A family member is an NHS consultant, 24-hour, seven-day week rotas, absolutely routine. Um, there's another one uh, about in the UK. There is an organisation called NHS Professionals, an agency run by the NHS and the government, which has to be the agency of first choice for the NHS, vastly reduces the use of private agencies and offers normal agency benefits, i.e. picking your own hours, but at NHS pay rates. Uh, What say you? Uh, Ask uh, Bernard, I think Bernard is back. Bernard, why are there so many managers in the middle layer on huge salaries and none of them in frontline on wards to help manage care? Okay, so there are lots of um, uh, people in the clerical management administrative grades that do work on frontline services. Uh, Our disability managers are categorised as managers, and I can assure you they work on the frontline every day of the week. Um, uh, I I think in the wider context uh, of the management of the health service, I did say uh, that the organisation was was very top-heavy in the way it was structured. And from the 1st of March, there will now be six people who will manage the entire services uh, in six regions. And whereas up to the start of March this year, they would report through three layers to me, uh, they'll now report directly to me. Yeah, I, I'm just looking at this new reorganisation of the HSE into these uh, six different regions. I mean, how many times do we have to reorganise our health services from health boards originally to the HSE and then decentralisation and then hospital groups and all the rest of it? Um, we're a small enough country. Yeah, the greatest failure of the reorganisation of structures within the HSE has been the inability to complete um, uh, the starting intention. Uh, My intention is very simple in these six regions. They're not six new organisations. It's all being done, apart from the six regional executive officers, all being done within existing numbers of people, including the changes to the centre, which I've made. Um, But but the fundamental issue is the structure is absolutely useless if it doesn't facilitate the intention. And the intention is that there's now one 
person who controls the entire resource and pathway for that patient you talked about who goes, can't get to the GP, goes into ED, goes into hospital, mm-hmm. goes into a step down and goes back home. Yep. And so all of those patient flow pathways uh, will now be directed uh, in, in one much more mm-hmm. simple process. Um, this one, I had to spend a lot of time in public hospital last year with my sick teenage daughter. Subsequently, I was diagnosed with cancer and I'm using the services of a private hospital. The difference in the approaches in both hospitals, immense. Public hospital has a very unionised attitude, porters, care assistants, etc. Whereas in the private hospital, everyone puts their shoulder to the wheel and gets the job done, even though it may not be on their job description from a frustrated taxpayer. Is that an issue in public hospitals? Well, look, firstly, I I think unions in the public sector play an enormously important role in terms of staff uh, being able to organise and and despite the the narrative that that the relationship is a constant battle between management and unions, that's not the case at all. Um, uh, uh, Most of the people I encounter uh, working not just in our hospitals but right across our services uh, are prepared to, prepared to put their shoulders to the wheel uh, and and the very managers and senior clinicians and other people that people often give out about that don't work uh, every day of the week for the last nine weeks Pat every morning seven days a week at 10 o'clock I talk to every hospital and every community healthcare area in Ireland and that includes Saturday and Sunday uh, there are an enormous amount of people who give an enormous amount of goodwill mm-hmm. Uh, in providing services to people. Yeah. There was a, a question when you uh, were cut off there about NHS professionals. It's an agency run by the NHS which offers the same flexibility to those agency staff. They get paid though NHS, NHS rates. Does uh, the HSE contemplate ever running its own agency to facilitate people who want flexibility which they would not get as full-time rostered staff? Yeah, so I suppose uh, we you, you probably might call that a direct employed pool um, uh, here. It's it's a difficult one to achieve, Pat, because of the range of choices people want. And, and if your rosters start from the perspective of being about the people you've employed rather than the people you're providing services mm. to, you end up with the same uh, distorted position we're in that leads mm. to the over-dependency on agency. Mm. So it's not, it's not that, that easy. Yeah. We, we uh, talked earlier about how you want to try to recruit people back from agency work into full-time staff. This one came into us. I'm a dual qualified general and psychiatric nurse with 14 years experience. I work full time at the HSE and I make €25 an hour. I have to work outside as an agency nurse to make ends meet and my rate as an agency nurse is €40 even when I work in HSE hospitals. I'm pretty sure the the hospital has to pay probably double what the agency pays me uh, to the agency. How can the HSE afford to pay that much when they say they can't afford their full-time members of staff? HSE also paused recruitment a few months ago when every hospital in Ireland was understaffed. Maybe if the government brings down tax rates for both single and married employees, more people might be willing to do overtime and resolve this staff shortage to an extent. That's from Salim. The, the point being, of course, as everyone knows who works a day's overtime or an hour's overtime, uh, the exchequer takes half. That's the reality. Yeah, it is. And, and agency workers are subject to the same tax rules as everybody else. There was EU directives that agency workers should be paid the same uh, as the comparative public sector uh, worker working in the same setting. And for many years, agency workers weren't. Uh, and I think it's only right they're paid the same. Yeah, but they're being I'm paid sure far more now. Uh, well, 40 euro sure. an hour compared to 25 euro an hour, which yeah. means it's costing you far more than 40 euro to pay the agency because they've got yeah. their overheads and their profit. So, 
so I'm not sure what setting that's in, but we run our agency through a framework, a procure framework where we pay agencies a set rate and, and we certainly wouldn't be making it attractive for people to be in agency work above our own work uh, in the general sense. So I, I don't know the specific circumstances, but uh, that would sound a little bit unusual to me. Right. Well, look, a, a final comment. You don't need to reply, uh, but it's uh, from a listener who says, our local veterinary surgery operates a day surgery and a night surgery. Two sets of staff. Uh, would this work for hospitals? Because uh, they need to be open 24-7. If it's good enough for animals, why can't humans get the same service? That's from uh, uh, one of our listeners. Yeah, and I, I look, and I, I, I respect I respect the views people have. I genuinely do, pass and, and I understand um, people's views as to how to make it better. Um, I, I wouldn't want to maybe be as pejorative as connecting humans to animals in terms of their treatment. But um, we, we, if you we were talk- kicking, if you were kicking dogs around the place and breaking their ribs, you might make the comparison. But when dogs are treated better than humans in their yeah, medical sure. services. Well, it's not quite the same thing. Anyway, look, Bernard, thank yeah, you very much for your time sure, this morning. I'm sure that that's the case, but thanks anyway, mm-hmm. Pat. Uh, that's the Chief Executive of the HSE, Bernard Gloucester. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.